welcome back to Comfy Nomads Travel Tribe. This is a podcast about, well, conversations with people that I meet during my world travels. This is Pilot Sarah, and we met very serendipitously at SFO a few years ago. So this episode, gosh, well, as we've gotten to know each other through, you know, we'd run into each other at the airport and through some other aviation-related events, we've learned that we've had some interesting synchronicities between growing up in between kind of generations Mm -hmm. and also growing up military and then also often working in spaces where we would be a minority as a woman. And you've had an added burden of being a minority as being gay. Right. So there was a lot of interesting things to unpack there. Gosh, I don't even know how to start the same more because our last conversation to prepare for this really flowed, but it was kind of all over the place. Did you want to start chronologically, maybe? Sure. Yeah. Because, well, you're a pilot. So first of all, there aren't many female pilots. I read that it's something like 5% of pilots are women. So I guess we could start with how did you, when you were a kid, did you want to become a pilot? Yeah, so I wanted to be a pilot since I was about six years old, and that's because, as we've talked about in the past, my father was career Air Force pilot. Every base we lived on, there was an aero club, and he would join the aero club, and we'd go fly little planes. So I was six years old when he, we lived in Ellsworth Air Force Base. We took off. We're flying, and, and he goes, well, you want to fly? And I'm like, I'm six years old. I can't drive a car. I'm like, no, I don't want to fly. And he goes, no, you can fly. And then I'm like, no, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm a little kid. And um, so we're flying along and we're going literally toward the four faces, you know, toward Mount Rushmore. And he put his hands behind his head and he looks at me and he goes, well, you're flying. And I'm like, no, I can't be flying. He goes, well, no one else is, you know, holding on to the yoke. And I just like grabbed the yoke as fast as I could. <laughs> and I, I'm like holding it and he's just smiling. And, and then, you know, fast forward 20 five years and I'm a flight instructor and I realized my father trimmed up the airplane so that it would fly straight and true. Mm-hmm. And he had his feet on the rudder pedals and you can turn with rudder pedals. You can you control the plane with rudder. Pretty much he could dampen out anything I would do with the yoke with oh. his feet. But I didn't know that at the time. I'm six. So I think I am flying and I, maybe I was flying, you know, cause I'm holding it and I can turn it. And, you know, I was worried about running into George Washington's eye, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, because in those days you could fly right over. That was the first time I flew at, at the age of six. But then, you know, we'd fly. We did other, um, you know, just other, uh, it just our lives were built around flying. And he was on the alert pad. It was a Cold War. We'd go out and uh, they always had a playground for the kids. He would be on alert one week a month. We lived right next to the flight line, you know, for acts. Well, he would be on the alert pad and live like a firehouse. You know, he lived with his crew in a, like a crash pad, you know, and then the klaxon would go off and they would be running to the plane. You know, we're, we're at uh, bases that were SAC bases, Strategic Air Command. And so we could go to the commissary, which is the grocery store, or to the base theater for movies or be at church in the chapel. And there would be a red warning light and klaxons everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that went off. You know, it could be right in the middle of the minister's sermon and boom, the crew is gone. And the crew sat in a certain pew. And when they parked their truck dedicated to them, it was backed in. So it's pretty much like being a firefighter. And then they'd wow. they on call. You on call, call. And they were gone 24 hours a day. And we only got to see our fathers. One, and it was in those days, all fathers once a week. Families would go out, rotate, you know, and we'd have Wednesdays or whatever day. And we'd go out and see dad. 
I was just, you know, I was hooked. I was addicted. And I'd say most pilots still today, being a pilot is almost an addiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, my kids are like, when are you flying next, mom? You're pretty grumpy. And I'm like, it's been two weeks. (laughs) And this is so funny because you also mentioned, though, when you were about 10, your father told you something. Yeah. So we, you know, he flew the KC-135 mostly, you know, a bunch of airplanes, but the KC-135 was the longest there would be every year there's an air show at every Air Force base. Thunderbirds always come by and kind of a morale builder for the Air Force families. And But his plane would always be on static display, which means you can go sit in it and look at it and take a tour of it. By the time I was eight or nine, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to be a pilot like you, Daddy. And he was like, okay, that's nice, honey. And then when I was 10, um, especially when I was 12, we had the conversation again. But when I was 10 years old, he goes, honey, I just I have to tell you something. I'm like, what, Dad? And he goes, you can't be a pilot if you're female. Women aren't allowed to fly airplanes. I don't want you building your hopes up or building a plan around your education that's going to involve flying airplanes because they won't let you. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway. And he goes, well, you can do anything. I know you can do anything you want to do right now. Women aren't flying planes. And, you know, you see the ladies out there on the news and they're protesting and, you know, women's rights are an issue and well, maybe something will come of that, but right now you can't fly an airplane. And I took that even as I couldn't fly a civilian airplane. I took that as no, no flying. I took it hard, you know, Mm -hmm. just historically, parenthetically, Women were flying airliners, but it just wasn't talked about. It wasn't known. The secrecy of things, keeping people from knowing about somebody who is like them, for instance, being gay or who, you know, who wants to be a woman who wants to be a pilot, you know, keeping that from each other is the way society is controlled, right? And I'm just jumping fast forward. So hopefully it's not too out of context. But when I was in college, when I was a freshman in college, I met the first woman, modern day woman pilot in the Air Force, because I was still an Air Force kid, and she was at Mather Air Force Base, and her name was Victoria Crawford, and I, you know, wanted to meet her and knew she was on on base, and she was really sweet and invited me over, and she goes, and I said, I'm in college, I have an air power history class, you know, can I interview you? And she goes, sure, you know, come on over. So I go over and said, you know, I really want to be a pilot, and I can't believe women are accepted to the academies now because up until I graduated from high school, they were not. And Oh, like you know, West Point, Yeah, West Annapolis, Point Air Force yeah, Academy, academy right. which I was most interested in. Um, she goes, well, I didn't go to an academy, and I'm a pilot. And I'm like, yeah, but I, uh, I'm sorry that I missed being in on the first class and, you know, I'll do my best to, to try. But what the more important part of that conversation was, she said, well, have you ever heard of the women auxiliary service pilots from World War II? And I'm like, I've never heard of them. And she goes, they, it was a secret that they existed. And she goes, I am not the first woman Air Force pilot. There was a whole cadre of women for like 1942 to 1945, something I might have my years slightly off. And they were the first women Air Force pilots, but they've been kept secret from us. We haven't gotten to know about them. The government didn't want to give them benefits of any kind or recognize them, but they're the rosy riveters basically of the air, but they were not talked about because there was no hazard pay. If one of the pilots died, their own family had to repatriate their body, pay for the expenses of bringing them home from, they were, you know, women had accidents and uh, were shot down a couple of times by enemy fire, no less. They had to be brought home by their family back to the United States, you know, at great expense to the family. It was never 
covered. So I said, oh, that's who I'm going to do my project on because I thought I was going to do it on Victoria, which I kind of did. Mm -hmm. But then she was the one who encouraged me, look into these women because no one knew about the WASP pilot in 19, 1980. You know, seven, well, sorry, it would be 1978, 79. But he was talking about them or really discussing them. And now they're a very popular subject, which I'm thrilled about. I did my project on women auxiliary service pilots in 1978 and got an A in the class, but I didn't know about them. If I had known about them, maybe I would have tried harder. Maybe I would have gotten a job at the burger stand or wherever, you know, and tried to solo by the time I'm 16, knowing that women could do that. And I uh, just, African-American, the black community, I've only recently seen how important that is. There's this African-American woman, a journalist who just, she's the first woman to have an evening anchor an evening news program. Mm -hmm. And her name is Joy Reed. And the program is called The Readout. One of her guests said, she started on Monday. And this was on Wednesday, one of the guests said, my little girl looked up and saw you on TV and said, look, mommy, her hair is curly, just like mine, you know, and I can do that job. And it really, it struck me, I was like, in, back in 1978. And I realized, man, if somebody had said, there are women who did this 30 years ago, 35 years ago, they had done this. This has already been done. You're not weird or abnormal for wanting to do this. That's a natural tendency. That's a good, you know, that's a good tendency. Yeah, that, that representation. Yeah. You, you talk about nowadays, I see it all over social media, representation matters. It's and I can seriously definitely does. see that because, yeah. I mean, I definitely had a similar parallel to travel because, mm -hmm. and, and also tech. While you were in college ROTC, I was a toddler. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. I also, you know, I grew up in a military family and we had a computer in the house, which was hilarious because it had a dot matrix printer. And when I was in elementary Catholic school in the early 80s, I was typing up all my reports and wow. printing them out. And everyone was still handwriting everything. I remember going into the office and there was a strange machine called a mimeograph where it was this <laughs> waxy thing. There was no copier machine. Like you wrote stuff on like wax paper and then you put it through this roller to make copies. And I'm like, it's what is this funny. primitive technology, right? <laughs> Here I am at six doing that. You're like a mimeograph. How quaint. It was, and you know, it was in some ways I had this one foot way in the past. Right. I had a much older parent, right? A depression era parent. And we had like all the junk from that time. Like there was a Victrola in the house. There was an eight track recorder. But then there was all of these latest gadgets that, because we were such an early adopter of tech, right. I had things that nobody had for years. Right. right. And so I always had this one foot like hopelessly stuck in the past. There was a manual typewriter there. And then I had this computer, right? With a disk drive and, wow. and all the stuff that was very, very high tech. I can't believe you had a Victrola. That's amazing. Try that. wait until like the late nineties when I had to catalog in a database two hundred of my grandma's polka records that were still being played on the Victrola. My life is just very strange. What? I just learned to roll with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And it's funny because back then nobody had tech. I'm a girl. Girls should be interested in playing with dolls and all this other stuff. And I'm I am watching on TV, though, the Norman Lear era sitcoms, huh, sure. and maybe that's what had an impression on me, because huh. I saw things like All in the Family and um, Sanford and Son mm -hmm. in Good Times and Laverne and Shirley. 
that I, my very first cursive letter was an L because oh, wow. Laverne had always had a cursive L stitched on her oh, clothes. And I'm just sitting there as like a little four or five year old. And I finally get out a sheet of paper all wide eyed and I drew it written reverse. So I didn't know this until recently, but you know, when you're a kid, you often write your letters mirrored. And so I did a cursive L mirrored <laughs> in reverse, <laughs> but I guess those were sort of role models, non-traditional things. I didn't have a Barbie until I was like 13 when my grandma found out I'd never had a Barbie. And she was horrified. So I opened up my Christmas gift and I'm like, what is this? But it was a mechanical one being all engineering, right? Like there's a switch on the back that the arms could move up and down. So I promptly chopped off all her hair, dyed it black. And out of (laughs) guilt every year, got her a new outfit every Christmas until I was 18. Cause I'm like, I have to make up for <laughs> all these years of not having, Oh wow! but I talked to other women who are engineers or, you know, mm. grew up in this very different environment. We realized our childhoods probably did contribute to winding up being in tech or being an engineer or in, in aviation, right? Where there aren't yeah. a lot of women. We often weren't exposed to the things typical yeah. girls were no exposed one was ex- to. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you had all that in your house, all this tech. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many kids get on an airplane, like, regularly? I'd go out to the alert pad. Oh, certain airplanes I couldn't get on because they are ready to go. You know, they, they were being guarded and ready to go. Right. But, you know, I was on planes all the time. I mean, that how was many normal kids? for you. It was right? totally normal for me. Right. And I didn't want that normalcy to stop. I knew, okay, well, when I graduate from high school and I'm supposed to move away from home and go to college, now I know I have to keep that going. How do I do that? Well, I need to go to the Air Force Academy and I need to learn how to fly planes or I want to fly a plane. Like I said, that's kind of an addiction. The smell right. of them, the sound of them. Yeah, you really embodied that. Yeah, Whereas the sound for of me, the smell. Yeah. it was funny because tech, I, I wasn't interested in the tech as much as like when I got into engineering school and everyone's obsessed with the parts and things. I was always interested in how to make tech accessible to people and make complex stuff right even when i was a kid like these computers in the 80s they're very complicated people Mm -hmm. didn't know what to do with them and the programming i would do was to just like you would turn on the computer and be like hey welcome here are the things you can do just press a number and the number would let you like open up word processing or go play a game or something so i was always more interested in the people side of things wow and i was obsessed with travel Mm-hmm. So when you were trying to go to the Air Force Academy to be a pilot, I was trying to go to the Naval Academy because I thought growing up military, because, you know, you're transferred every few years, the military was going to be my path to traveling. Yeah, I moved 15 times by the time I turned 15. You travel a lot. Right. And yeah. I didn't since... As a military kid. Even though my dad retired when I was fairly young, I guess it's still in the blood <laughs> to move around. Yeah, I so I only moved one, two, three... I went to four different schools, so four times. Uh And we tended to stay in the same area because retirees in the South, you want to be near a military base because free health care. The BX, the commissary. Yeah, all of that. You know, so I grew up in that military culture, Mm -hmm. and I went to junior ROTC in high school that was military. I was ready to do all of that. And it sounds interesting for both of us that, like, those dreams kind of stopped in very different ways in college. Yeah. Right? Because you didn't wind up going into the military right? In the end. And it's, I don't know about you, but it almost sounds like it's both because we were female. A yeah. lot of it. Yeah. And that we were stopped at different, at different uh, stages. And for you, I mean, even though that was, like, 15 years prior. Right. 
women couldn't fly or they had their pilot quotas for women done. Yeah. And you wound up taking a different path, which got you to places like NASA and other things. Right. And, you know, and you wound up doing research and, and you wound up having a much more, I think, interesting career because you wound up flying so many different types right. of aircraft. And right. you had that, that corporate the startup airline, you had the cargo. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, looking back, do you think that if you'd gone military, maybe you wouldn't have had all of those different experiences, no, it's, right? That's really fascinating if I had gone military and, you know, and being gay. So my plan was I will remain celibate because I don't want to be kicked out. And, you know, that's how much flying meant to me. Like, wow. you know, I'd be a priest, <laughs> the priest of aviation. <laughs> And the priestess, uh, priestess, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, like, you know, okay, you know, I don't want to get kicked out. I don't want to break a rule. I'll mm -hmm. follow rules. You know, and I was a senior and I had my wings. They said, hey, we've met our quota with women and women are experimental anyway. I was literally told women are experimental anyway. And uh, oh, I had right. signed a contract, you know, either for the MOS, which is called method of service, mm -hmm. or you, the first assignment what you want. And that would mean I don't care what I do, but I want to be in Italy first or, you know, you right. know, some plush uh, London or wherever. And um, I didn't care. You could send me to Korea. I don't care. I want to be a pilot. I don't care what hardship. I mean, Korea, I love Korea. South Korea is uh, one of my favorite places. So like a hardship, you know, place in Saudi somewhere where I'd have to cover up and all that, you know, I don't care, you know, as long as I'm flying. But no, you know, I lost that my senior year. And so I ended up having to, you know, figure out what am I going to do next? I thought, well, at least um, I could be who I am. And if I start dating, that'll work. And if I don't, you know, I, that's not what I was about. I was more trying to figure out how am I going to be in aviation? I was getting a master's degree in cognitive psychology, you know, interested in how the brain works because I was interested in about stereoscopic vision at night when pilots land at night you're dealing in 2D, not 3D, and you have to adjust how you land. So that became kind of my focus and it kind of paralleled to that. Now I'm starting to date and, you know, now I've had to come out to my parents and my parents were, you know, they love me and, you know, no matter what, but my mother was crying and kind of sad and she goes, but honey, I always had an envision to, you know, for you that you'd marry a doctor and you'd live in the suburbs and you'd have three children. And I'm like, mom, that is never going to happen. <laughs> Not ever. And I'm, you know, and I'm I, laughing now because I already you know, know the, the story. story. <laughs> but, but sure enough, you know, I'm dating and I happen to marry a woman who is a doctor who introduced to me the concept that, yeah, lesbians can have kids too. It didn't occur to me that lesbians could have kids. So Catherine and I are married we have three kids and we live in the suburb. My mother was right. She knew. <laughs> she knew she could see the future and that that would happen. And I ended up at NASA, you know, as a result of the master's degree, I was writing a paper and I was presenting it at a colloquium and some NASA researchers said, hey, you want to write your thesis down at NASA Ames, come down for the summer. And I'm like, sure. And I go down for the summer and they're like, we like you. Would you like to stay here? And I'm like, okay. And so then I end up in aviation human factors, working in simulators and working on flight deck design and certain instruments I fly with as an airline pilot today. I was one of a cast of thousands, well, maybe hundreds, right. but probably thousands. And things like the uh, traffic alert and collision avoidance system, it's called the TCAS, mm -hmm. TCAS 2. I helped work on that. And oh, how it's exciting. So, yeah, it's like, kind so of now funny. As you fly, you know, it's just a career, just a career. Yeah. But it must be That's really, my piece yeah. right there, right? You know, a couple of things on flight decks I was around at the inception of, you know, and 
and uh, the work that NASA does is all public domain, and so the research they do is allowed on the public domain, and so Boeing can pick it up or Raytheon or you know whoever is interested in designing instruments of whatever kind can use our data. I never would have done that if I were in the military. I would never. I wouldn't have had kids. I wouldn't have had a spouse. I wouldn't. I'd know how to fly a couple of airplanes, maybe, or maybe they would have been helicopters, or who knows. But I'd only now, at my age now, be out in the world, maybe, starting right. to date, and I never would have had kids. I mean, and the, my children, which is so stereotypical sounding, but they are the joy of my life, and they really are the reason for my existence. I did think airplanes were the reason for my existence, <laughs> but after having three kids. It's like I'm truly blessed, and they were very divergent paths. Themselves. Themselves, yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, it's so funny because talking about different generations and how things have changed so much, we were really reflecting on that. Like when I first met you, I was explaining to some of my other aviation friends, like, oh, this pilot is so cool. She just reminds me of this really nice Midwestern grandmother, and you are a grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, but yeah. I wouldn't have, I I don't even think in those terms anymore. Because, you know, we were talking about, like, 20 years ago, you would, people would be like, oh, someone has a gaydar. Yeah. Right? Oh, I heard that term, too. Right? And, and I guess clearly mine's broken. I can't tell, or I don't even pay attention to those things anymore. Which I feel is very liberating. It for, really is. No, I've yeah. had these, and you know, the airlines I've been at, but I was at one airline that was, uh, the flight attendants were remarkably beautiful. So I'm a lesbian, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but I was blown away that quite a few of them were lesbians because they didn't <laughs> look lesbian. Not that lesbians can't be beautiful, but it was like I no way would have thought, you know, that the, these two women are together, for instance, or a couple. Right. That just blew my mind. And it's just this, thank God, we've evolved to this point where it just doesn't matter. You you know, it's the fulfillment of the self and your higher self, you know, trying to, you know, just navigate, be right. yeah, be, navigate your most fulfilled life. And I, so my gaydar has been offline for a really <laughs> long time. I was like, mine's broken offline. Yeah. And, and it's know, not the goal of anybody I anymore. Know, it right? seems like. Like when, yeah. when I moved here to California 20 years ago, there was almost a obsession with what is your sexuality. And I, I grew so, up, yeah. growing up in the South, like... No, didn't even think about that. I grew up in a weird set of circumstances where I was often by myself, mm. like a lot. I mean, I would have like the stuffed animals around and like nature and stuff. So I kind of joke, I didn't get the memo about a lot of things in life, which I'm looking as a positive now because I didn't yeah. get sucked into these stereotypes. Yeah, into like these labels. Of... What a girl should be. Right. right? You know, going to um, college on a scholarship and then realizing, oh, I'm not doing this Naval Academy thing. Actually, I'm getting out of Army ROTC. I am not. I'll find some other way to travel because as you, you had that obsession with flying, I had this deep, deep desire to travel the world. Mm -hmm. Going back to that Charles Kuralt thing of meeting people, finding out their stories, sharing their stories, helping people with complicated concepts. I love that. Right? Aww. But that's what really drove me. And I love that you think but that. Yeah. It was interesting, though, because throughout college, I was often one of just one or two women in a class mm -hmm. of guys. And then for a while, I was military where there was only a couple of women. Right. So I was always around, I assume, straight guys, or they were, I guess they were closeted in the early 90s, right? Yeah. We were talking about this where you had to say 
you know, right. on your military record, yeah. you flat out did not commit any homosexual acts. Was that it? Right. So on my, in my day, you know, in the uh, early 80s when I, uh, you know, was uh, signing up for ROTC and applying to West Point and various things on the application, it was, what's your name? You know, what's your social security number? And I mean, quite literally, what's your birth date? And then the next one was, have you ever committed a homosexual act? Wow. And then I already, I mean, I knew I was gay, but I hadn't even dated anybody yet. But I did laugh when it said homosexual act because I'm, you know, I always think of a man, homosexual. And, you know, I'm, I have, have I done a lesbian act? But at the time, no, I hadn't done. You're taking the question literally. You answer the question, be a lawyer. Yeah. They ask you the question, you answer the question. I was totally (laughs) like being a, you know, and it kind of made me laugh. But then I realized that this is really serious. And of course I, I answered no, because it wasn't the case. Like I said, I never even dated anybody yet at that point. And it was something that when you, um, you know, you had to sign your sophomore to junior year, you had to sign another one of those. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, boy, this is like a big deal to them. Like, who, why do they care? Like, who, who cares? But still, you know, I could truthfully answer no. By the time I'm a senior, you know, and now it's, you know, about to be commissioned or I will be commissioned by the end of the academic year, I realized um, I wasn't sure what they're going to make me sign something again, you know, <laughs> right. but I don't think they did. And But it was inside my 201 file. It was a form inside my 201 file as opposed to what your story is. But that's when I committed to I want to do this so bad. I want to fly so bad. I will be true to this thing that I just won't date, literally like a priest or a nun, you know, right. just like – you were that like was my super committed. I was super committed and I will wait till I retire. So my whole, my life would have been a whole. Right. Cause retiring is 20 years. 20 so in years. the military, I, I, I don't know. If that's yeah. yeah. Like it's, you can retire after 20 years in the military yeah. and, um, some people can stay on for 30, but that's very rare. That's like yeah. your generals and stuff. Right. right. My dad was in for 22, you know, so the Vietnam war was, had been happening and was, winding up. So he had a few extra things. I think they just wanted him to do, but mostly most, well, my friends, their dads are in 20. Yeah. My dad was 22. That's standard. Yeah. And, uh, well, I know for me, so I guess you were late seventies. I was early Mm nineties. I remember like I couldn't get into the Naval Academy because I was too young. So the plan was ROTC for a year at some university anywhere and then transfer. This is where affirmative action was very interesting because I, I benefited from it and I suffered from it simultaneously. And this was the suffered part because I did not claim I was a minority. They had different SAT score level cutoffs for getting a scholarship or not. Someone who claimed being a minority, he had a much lower SAT score. He got a full four-year Navy ROTC scholarship. I had a much higher score, but because I was a woman, they had a higher bar. I missed getting any kind of scholarship by like 10 points. Wow. Which, you know, SAT, the highest you give is 1,600. So that was painful, mm-hmm. right? But I had applied to the Army as a backup, and they gave me a three-year scholarship, which luckily the university I went to matched it. So year one was tuition-free, assuming that the military was going to pick up the rest. <laughs> And so anyway, I do remember we had this thing rubber stamped on the front of our folder and it basically said, I'm not gay and you had to sign it. So I was like, okay, whatever. I'm not gay. So I signed it. (laughs) And then this was right at, this was 1993 in the fall. By spring of 1994, I guess Don't Ask, Don't Tell had gotten like implemented. Mm -hmm. And I was called back in by one of the officers 
and I was presented with a folder and I had to witness them scrub out the stamp thing and my signature with a Sharpie. And I don't remember, maybe I had to sign something that said, yes, I witnessed this. They can't even ask about your sexuality oh, anymore. That you witnessed the removal of the question. Which is oh, like, wow. as you know, you put a Sharpie over anything. It doesn't really <laughs> remove it, but <laughs> I suppose ignorance is bliss. I just didn't think about any of that. Yeah, and, that's you know, crazy. it was it was interesting, too, because being around guys so much and clueless engineers, I just became a clueless engineer. <laughs> I didn't understand anything about, like, fashion or makeup or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky in some ways because a lot of us who were in science and engineering, uh, who were women, we would go to the mall like once a month and be like, let's try out a different makeup counter because since we have no idea, we should understand what these other alien <laughs> females are. They probably think we're alien, right? Like Engineers being trained in another uh, form. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, you should have because I went to this very elite private university uh -oh. and it was lots of blue blood money mm. from the East Coast and the, well, the Southeast. And you should have seen me. Like I did not grow up in, I was say lower middle class mm -hmm. you know they had cotillions well no i mean <laughs> imagine someone in camouflage and combat boots riding a hot pink bike from kmart that was like 89 dollars because that's all you could afford right yeah <laughs> drive you know biking down past like a tri-delt who jumps out of the way off the sidewalk to stay away from you <laughs> scary person right like <laughs> But, you know, back to the makeup counter thing, like one of the women was just like, oh, your skin looks so nice. He's like, you don't need much. Just here, try some lipstick and some eyeshadow, but like, don't try any of this other stuff. I just felt so nice that I was just accepted. Yeah. Like, I don't need to wear these. It felt like cakes of stuff. Like when I tried it on, like how, and plus in the South, you'd sweat it off oh, in like wow. five minutes anyway. I'm That's like, funny. why would I do this for half an hour? To walk outside and it's all going to be gone in five minutes. Like the efficient engineer in me is like, this is just not. Yeah. It's a waste of time. Yeah. Like, what's the point? Right. But I always wondered because I love looking at women and, and I can appreciate if they have makeup on or not. I always wondered, what if a woman looks like really different without the makeup on? And as that woman, how would that feel? Like, are you presenting yourself as um, like, that's not who you are. So how do I know who you are? <laughs> Do you, know, do you I get think what I because, mean? Well, like, you know, I think because a lot of it, now that I've seen this on Instagram and other places where makeup tutorials on YouTube and Instagram, right? The, you get so indoctrinated into such a young age. Like I had one colleague, she's like in her early 60s. We had to go to an event. She woke up too late. She's trying to put on makeup in the car and she said she feels naked without it. Oh, interesting. She's not even used to seeing her face without makeup. Oh, wow. And part of this was you, she started putting on makeup as a teenager. And I thought about this. Now I was like, oh, what was I doing as a teenager then? Clearly, I, I, but you know, again, I grew up in a very strict household mm -hmm. and I also graduated early to get out of South Carolina. So, mm. like, I was very focused on getting out yeah. of the state. And I rebelled by being good because I was like, uh-uh, I see all these other people, you know, because I went to high school at a time when the pregnancy, teenage pregnancy rate was super high. Oh, wow. And so my mom wouldn't let me date. She's like, if the Mormons across the street are getting pregnant, she's like, there's no hope for you. And I'm like, that is so, <laughs> I hate it when parents are right, right? I'm just looking at her like, <laughs> um, I cursed inwardly for sure. But, it, you know, even true, like, so, you know, I would go to the Naval Hospital 
because military health care, that doesn't mean I was going to the hospital. That's where my doctor was, right? Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, the TRICARE. Yeah, and so I was going to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription. On your military ID, you always the name of your sponsor, mm -hmm. in this case, my dad. And so I'm tossing the ID at the counter, and the woman's like, oh, and she's looking at my ID. She's like, this isn't for your son. I'm like, I'm 15. Do I look old enough to have a kid? She's like, which high school do you go to? She's like, yeah, you do. <laughs> Whoa, my gosh. So I was, I could see this all around me. I was like, uh-uh, no, I cannot get into, I just need to get out of here, oh. right? Because I thought if I got pregnant, <laughs> I'm going to be here even longer. <laughs> right? right, that would be. Yeah, and no thanks. Yeah. Um, wow. So this was interesting. Yeah. So I didn't get the memo about wearing the makeup mm -hmm. right and didn't get the memo about playing dolls and stuff mm -hmm. and did you play with dolls Eliza? you know i didn't but my sisters my sisters did and my father's mother was really into crochet and sewing and and she always wanted it to be equal and so she'd give us each a barbie every year and gave us a wardrobe i mean girls would just die over the wardrobe of clothes my grandmother had made mm -hmm. like little itty bitty hangers in an actual wardrobe that you could open and close and every year my sisters got double. I'm like, and so I'm like, oh, my grandmother doesn't love me because I felt like I, did, I didn't receive a gift because playing with dolls, I'd, I wanted to be outside riding my, my banana seat bike, you know, oh, right. I remember and playing those. army, you know, that's what I wanted to be outside. And I was always with the boys. I just wanted, I wanted to be running around outside and the doll was symbolic of staying in and staying clean. And I wanted to be out and get dirty, you know, dirty uh. and and see, for me, I just got stuffed animals. Ah. Everybody, relatives, everyone. And the only doll I ever got was when my uncle went to China, he and my aunt, in 1984, which was really not common to go as a tourist to China yeah. back then. Yeah, because we weren't in good terms with China at the time. Yeah, right? so they brought back a kung fu doll. <laughs> of oh, course. Nice. So, you know, I had a kung fu doll, yeah. and I had, like, a stuffed owl and a stuffed pink elephant. And so I had this bizarre fantasy land of stuffed oh, animals, right? Yeah. Um, and they became sort of like my extended family. So I didn't want to get dirty. I didn't want to, I did, you know, like, yeah. I, it, it was just interesting. So it was yeah. very different. But as we talked about, though, like, yeah, being around guys, like, they don't often notice fashion and other things. And when I learned this in college, I would run over to the other girls and be like, you don't have to wear makeup. They don't care. Like, they're not going to notice. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, the girls, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm like, so wait, why are you doing all this makeup and dress? Is it for each other or what? I totally just didn't get the memo. <laughs> right? And then yeah. it was interesting after I left engineering and I went to education. It flipped. Suddenly it was like 90% women. And I'm like, whoa, okay. I've been beamed down to another planet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember the first day, someone's like, I really love that shirt you're wearing. And I kind of blinked. I'm like, my first reaction was crap because now I have to think about what I'm wearing. Yeah. What if I wear that shirt again like a week from now? Is that going to be, you're going to notice? Because it seemed kind of eerie that they noticed these things. Yeah. Like you know, said that happened with your sisters, right? Yeah. They would they would say something and uh, you know about something I was wearing or that I chose something and I, I didn't choose anything. I just, whatever, whatever's <laughs> the closest I put on, you know, it's like this was not a coordinated effort. Anything that came to my Right. Mine. And so it does make me think, you know, talking to you and you're straight and I'm gay and, you know, we're both of the engineer penchant, you know, right. more, I wonder if it's just being the, the engineer that 
contributes to that too. Cause like you're talking about being efficient and what's, uh, right. you know, it's just, it's just not practical. But to... then see, I became hippie, which was so funny because <laughs> I really got into more metaphysical stuff. Right. I started to understand these like serendipitous moments weren't always just random. And I started to be a lot more intuitive. I would notice things that would freak out people. And I had to learn how to dial it down. And I was like, can you be military and hippie? <laughs> I don't yeah. know, right? Like, maybe I... It, the military would be better for it. Right. And Absolutely. maybe the hippies would act... You know, and this was funny, because yeah. when I got into education, it was more social science. So it was mm -hmm. no longer zero or one, yes, no, on, off, right, wrong. There could be a whole different spectrum of answers. Anything could be correct. This made my brain... You know, there's that emoji of your brain exploding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that became me for a while. I guess it's learning to come to peace with both and mm. understand again maybe i was trying to explain complex concepts to both worlds because i was in educational technology for a while which was, meant i dealt with engineers and scientists along with educators mm -hmm. and often each group would come up to me and be like can you explain to the other side like this is not how it works i'm yeah. like well that's not how your perception of reality you know for engineers everything is about a flow chart there's only one right answer and for educators who are talking about case studies and like we build upon knowledge we already know, but they both have this thing of, if you don't understand me 100%, forget it. And I had to be this bridge. Like yeah. I would work with the engineers and be like, well, if you're going to teach us math problem or concept in class, maybe give an example of how you would use it in the real world first. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't tell them the education theory behind. I'd be like, try this. And they're like, oh, I can do that. With the educators, I'd be like, this is how an engineer thinks. Like, if we can get them to that point, mm -hmm. that's amazing. Yeah. Right? It's progress. Right. We don't need that perfection. And this takes time to, yeah. to change your mindset. So in, in thinking about time and changing mindset, that reminds me again about how perception has changed, right? Like, mm -hmm. in 2009, I was at She's Geeky, which was this conference for women in tech. It was at fittingly, the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, I went to a panel or it was like an unconference session about fashion. Uh -huh. And I really felt like, I always felt like I've kind of like a millennial in disguise. I've always been like 10 or 20 years ahead of the curve. The things I did would be considered radical, like traveling for work yeah. and just travel as part of my work. People were like, when are you going to get a day job, right? Whereas now everyone's like, oh, you're just a digital nomad, whatever. Yeah, and then and I'm like, gig worker, like that's right? a new thing for me. You and, know, you know, for me, I'm yeah. just, I was used to that. And yeah. anyway, but, you know, so this was 2009. And I remember I almost felt like I was in this weird continuum. Mm -hmm. so people sitting to the right to me of me were older. So I guess they were baby boomers. People sitting to the left of me were a lot younger. So I was in, what, my early 30s, 10 years ago. See, these people who are older than me were just like, oh, I never wear like even V-neck t-shirts and stuff because I don't want the attention or the comments from guys. And the 20-somethings are like wearing short skirts and stuff. And they're just like, huh, why would, who cares? Just wear whatever you want. And I'm sitting here like, I felt like almost the shift was going through wow. me, right? That shift in consciousness right. of be you. And it bypassed me because I'm like, well, I don't wear low cut shirts because if I'm driving, the seatbelt rubs against so It's not practical. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I clearly didn't get the memo on either side about yeah. what's going on. Right. But I could sense there was a shift. In the fashion. Right. Yeah. And we're just in this perception of mm -hmm. you do you. Yeah. 
now it just feels like, wow, it's even more freeing than when I first came out here 20 years ago. Because California was a lot more open-minded, at least on the surface, mm -hmm. or at least here in the Bay Area. <laughs> I could just go inland a little bit. and Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true because you wound up, because you mentioned Sacramento at some point, right? right. So did you live there? Yeah, my, my mom was from Sacramento, and we moved so much that my dad promised her he would retire at Mather, which is outside of Sacramento. And right. she was the youngest of five, and she had four older brothers. And, and it's a whole other story, but my dad actually did some secret CIA black covert work in Vietnam his last year. And so that's a really fascinating story. And the, but the um, mortality rate was very high. We moved from Barksdale in Louisiana. Like I, I lived in the South a lot too. Ooh. We moved from Barksdale. <laughs> yeah. And then we moved to Sacramento when I was a teenager, no less. So that was really a hard transition. And I got made fun of for my Southern accent. And they asked me, did I eat alligator and all that? And, you know, really I, had had a northern accent before that, you know, living right. in Rapid City, South Dakota. And you're always transitioning as a military kid, as you know. But so um, you become a chameleon. You're to oh, totally a chameleon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And military towns are almost like little bubbles because people in the base are from all over the world, too. Yeah. There's this new, I kind of call it the military neutral. Thank you for choosing AT&T. <laughs> Actually, yeah. cause my teachers didn't have accents yeah. necessarily. Right. Unless I went off base, which, you know further away from base, you'd get more of the Southerners. Right. So. Well, even my name, um, you know, when my parents named me, it was a name that they hadn't really thought of. And one of their friends named their, their little girl this name, you know, and then they moved, they were always overseas and we were more um, stateside. Oh, well, they'll never see each other again. Well, she and I graduated from the same high school in Sacramento <laughs> and we have the same exact name in class. And it was pretty funny and then and I had watched her grow up in family Christmas cards get exchanged right. you know so here we were in the, the same high so you do run into each other in the military kind of like in the in the airlines you will meet friends again my mom being from Sacramento we dad moved there retired out of Mather Air Force Base and then like you were saying it was really nice they had Mather and McClellan so they had two commissaries two BXs two officers clubs two hospitals you know they had a lot of choice and then or they could come down to Travis both bases ironically closed and they ended up having to drive down to Travis for stuff the valley is very different the Sacramento Valley is very different from the Bay Area yeah very different and, and, you know, just thinking about what you were just mentioning about airlines and things, you've seen a lot of changes, yeah. right, in culture and, I guess, treatment of women. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, you know, my dad saying, you know, women don't fly. That was military. But I think that was also that flowed over to the civilian flying, which we didn't really know anything about. There were women, as it turns out, but you had to go find right. it. But you didn't wind up flying as a career until like 2000, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, right? late so 90s. At that point, was it more accepted? I th yeah, it was more accepted. And then my mentor, who was a uh, uh, captain at United, whose her year, when she started, her seniority date was 1978. So mm -hmm. she was starting, uh, she started really early. So she, she kind of was that half generation ahead of me who went through a lot of crap. Mm -hmm. But then the generation in front of her was, you know, went through a perfect hell. And then mine was, you know, I had three quarters of it. You know, I had, I had a lot, but not as much as my friend. 
And then there are women after me who still had it, but it was less so. And now the young pilots, you know, the 25-year-olds are coming into flying today. You could talk to them about that, and they're like, what? You know, what do you, I don't, you know. Which is I, I so. I don't have a problem with, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, gr it's great. And it's also, it really reminds me I need to stay in the moment because it's so easy to reminisce and kind of be like, oh, well, this happened to me when I was younger. But yeah. that's no longer the case now. It, and it isn't. How much of it is important to remember that history but not be bound by it? Yeah, because you can really hold yourself back by being bound by these Which things. Is that, that I think that's what I see yeah. with, and I don't want to say boomers because that sounds so, but I'm noticing that with people who are older. I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I see that sometimes, that people get really stuck. Oh, that's fascinating. Like you were saying the in the fashion. Yeah, um, like she was still believing this. She was this. still yeah, held back by it, and then the younger ones are like, what? I dress for myself. I don't dress for the thought of what other people might interpret. Right. And if attire. someone says something sexist about what I'm wearing, I'm just going to report that person. Now, it's not, you know, things have really shifted in recent years with yeah. like the Uber engineer who reported what was going on. We have a lot of sexism in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Again, because you've got what? So many engineers who are men. Right. Right. And you don't have as many women in tech or in leadership. There's still a long way to go, but we've right. come a long way. We have. You know? And yeah. I don't know if there was a point to any of this, but <laughs> it was really, it was interesting. I realized that, gosh, we, thinking about all these different generations, what people have had to go through, I guess maybe women in tech are just unicorns, right? And we're sort of like a subset that is not easily labeled, mm -hmm. you know? Whereas I think there's been this obsession with labels. We see with like, sexuality right it right. was gay lesbian then we had right. bisexual and then transgender and then there was now you have pansexual asexual demisexual i can't keep it you know i can't either and i am one and i can't you know after <laughs> lgbt when we got to lgbt and i'm like oh boy t i have to remember t and then and then it just keeps going i don't know q, q maybe a, a plus something q that's right yeah. Well, I think queer is now They're taking like, that back. Right. Yeah, it's kind of queer, cool. Like you were telling me, I didn't know this, that like the term dyke was pejorative. Yeah, kinda, that was a pejorative yeah. for a long time. Yeah, And, and then, so was queer. And yeah. I, I don't know any of this. I'm just queer. Yeah. You know, I float through the world <laughs> observing things from, well, you know, that's the other thing that I do love flying. I love being up at 35,000 feet and looking down because it gives me a sense of perspective. Because often when I'm on the ground, mired in all of these details we've just talked about, it's easy to get wrapped up in that. Mm -hmm. But then when I'm up in the air, it's like, how much of this, at the end of the day, we're all human, we're all going through the same things, we're all wanting the same fundamental things yeah. in life. It's all okay. Yeah. So I don't know, what do you think about when you're flying? It's funny because I, even getting my private license, you know, the first, my first few flights, I remember feeling like I was shedding stress and shedding concerns and cause well, especially when you're first learning how to fly or you're first learning any, anything, you know how you just concentrate so hard on that exact thing. And so when I'm flying, I always feel like, cause I'm, you know, a well, you're working actually. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, you know, I all, I'm a list maker and I'm a, you know, I'm a warrior and I do, I'll project ahead and how, and I, being an engineer, it's kind of like, I need to plan around this and that and that, you know, I'm like planning. Flying is the only place I realize where I'm in the moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I know that's really where I'm supposed to be in, you know, when I'm on the ground too, I'm right here right now. 
you know, and as um, easy as flying is to me now, flying my airplane is so second nature. I feel like, you know, I'm sitting in my living room, windows, the scenery is just going by my living room, you know. It's almost <laughs> right. like, you know, such like being in an easy chair or something is just so easy. Still, it commands your attention to the, that degree, like nothing else is just you and your airplane. You're right here, right now. And I, I love that sensation. So I, in a way, it's meditative for me when I'm flying. In addition to the beauty of looking down, which I wish people could see, because you have almost a 360-degree oh, view. Jealous. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I totally get that. You know, the little view you have is so limited. Although now the with the new um, the screens, the yeah. IFE, the in-flight entertainment screens, right. are getting so huge that they have now the latest Collins Rockwell, I think, um, uh -huh. software. You can actually, they put cameras everywhere. I've heard that. And now I can see yeah, and yeah. Right, right down below so I can look mm. straight down. Beautiful. And so I'm starting to see more, yeah. which is really cool because before I would have to figure out what seat to sit in to maximize whatever photographic right um image i want for that time because right. i am i guess this is how we can end this i am doing um i'm working with a photographer to do an exhibit of images taken from the air oh neat and she's really pushing me from an artistic perspective to get the emotional quality of oh, it wow. I think that's one of my favorite places is being in between the clouds. Oh, really? Right, because sometimes you have those different layers of clouds yeah. and you pass through one and then, you know, you've got clouds above you and clouds below. I'm sure uh -huh. there's a technical term for this, but that liminal state, I just love that. Ah. And that meditative state that you mentioned, she really wants me to push that with my images to try mm. and do an exhibit to have someone feel that. How can we capture that yeah. for everyday people who are often on the ground? Yeah. Don't, lo don't understand this love of flying. Right. Oh, some I people are very fearful of it. Right. And whereas to me and to you, it's a meditative thing. It's yeah. a peaceful thing. It's a wondrous thing. Wondrous. Right. Yeah. You know, I, the, I'm mesmerized by, by the ground and what I'm seeing. And I wish I had a degree in geology, you know, because of the formations that you see is just fascinating to me. And, you know, that it is, it's meditative and it's wondrous and I can't wait to do it again. And, but it is, it's kind of an addiction. And I used to joke when I was paying to get licenses as a civilian, that it was more expensive than any drug addiction. <laughs> and my flying addiction was more expensive. The kids definitely notice when mom hasn't been flying. Well, people have also noticed when I don't travel. Yeah. Because I remember at work get one it. time years ago, someone's like, I was grumpy, nothing was going right. And finally, one of my colleagues, she, she goes over to a calendar. She's like, yep, that's about right. I'm like, what? She's like, you haven't flown in a month. <laughs> She's like, you need to get on an airplane. And I'm like, what? She's like, you always get grumpy after about a month. Yeah. It's... So I would just even take a Southwest flight to SoCal and <laughs> come back. Actually, just going to SoCal with all the traffic and concrete and noise, I'd be happy coming back because I appreciate it. Like yeah. the, the relative, the nature here, the relative green. Oh, it's beautiful here. Uh, yeah. I was like, okay, maybe I just needed that if nothing else. But like a reality check. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't flown much in recent year, year and a half. I've only flown twice in the last seven months, but I still feel giddy. I didn't think I would. Mm. And I think some of the reason why people don't enjoy flying is because the experience is so awful now. Yeah. You're so crammed Just in. Just getting to it. Yeah. And if you're in an aisle seat and someone reclines in front of you and it's just not fun. Right. 
too bad we can't just give everyone window seats yeah. on, on a private jet where you would bring catering in from Costco. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a everybody gets a window seat. Right, yeah. in, a, in a private jet. Yeah, or a couch. There's couches, the seatbelts. I saw this yeah. when I went to... Um, Memphis to see, you know, Elvis has Graceland. Oh, sure. He has his planes there, and he had a bed with a, um, you still need a seat belt on the bed, and it had a gold-plated belt buckle. Ah, it was crazy. That's like, hilarious. That's, yeah. Well, when I flew internationally, and we have our bunks, we have a we have a belt that we put across us. Yeah. Wow. But well, in a couple of places. <laughs> you know, because you... You could be around, flying. Yeah, yeah. Literally in the plane. It had to keep you, yeah. Wow. Well, you know, this was a fun conversation i am starting to learn that you see the engineer in me was like because in my other podcast series i have topics time limits you need to stay focused on these things but conversations often flow and ramble we don't know where it's going to take us mm -hmm. but we always pull up interesting new insights mm. and is there anything you would take away from this conversation i'm fascinated by the for military children the you know just how much we have in common I think that's really, and you know, and I'm almost old enough. That wasn't the Cold War when you were a military kid, was it? Was it? Uh, it ended over? when I was in the eighth grade. Oh, okay. Maybe we were still dealing with nuclear, you know, missiles being pointed at the places we lived. I lived yes. with that kind of fear, and you know, but. We saw the foreshadowing of the, was it Persian Gulf, Desert Storm, oh, Desert did. Shield, okay. because around the early 90s, we started seeing on the military base trucks were suddenly being painted in sand-like oh, colors. Wow. It's like, uh -huh, something's going on here. But no, I was in this weird time of transition Yeah. because I wound up writing in 1989, I was in the eighth grade, and I was writing a paper about the Berlin Wall. I actually had to go find a different source than the encyclopedia because the wall had just fallen. Wow. And I had to sort of rewrite the paper, but we didn't have access to the internet to wow. write things easily. So yeah. where do I find the stuff? I grew up being very afraid of Russians and the Soviet Union, and guess what? I look as Russian as any, you know, a lot of blonde, blue-eyed people. I kind of didn't know that. Yeah. Right. And, you know, speaking of that, communists, right? Especially yeah. having an Asian parent where it was communist, there was a war going on and stuff. When I was in Tokyo in, like, 2003, learning about sexism and other things that were happening to women in Japan oh, where their yeah. butts were getting pinched in the subway. And one woman actually grabbed the guy, took him to the police station. The police were like, you should get used to this. This is normal. And I'm just gasping inside. Wow. And I grew up very conservative military. If you were military, you're a Republican, right? right. And you're very conservative <laughs> right. in all right. manners. Yeah. yeah. And um, suddenly that was when a light bulb went off. I looked over at my translator friend and I said, you know, I appreciate Gloria Steinem now. If people hadn't protested, like you had mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, the women's liberation movement, people were protesting then, would I be standing here in the middle of downtown Tokyo, surrounded by all these skyscrapers, and I just came out of a business meeting? I don't know if that would have happened. I do appreciate that. The times, they are changing again. Yeah, And, you know, are. people were kind of hand-wringing about, oh, this is so awful. I'm like, no, this was the next spurt of growth. And right. growth is not always pleasant. And sometimes right. you got to rip that scab off and to let it fully heal. Yeah. Well, yeah. see, and I think that's the cool thing about your podcast, though, too, is that um, I was on the cusp of baby boom and what is it, X? Yeah, I get yeah. X, yeah. There are times when I catch myself and I'll be 
I'll be more aware of it of, well, that's how it was. And I still cast my life, you know, with that as uh, some kind of limitation. And it's not, you know, I find that really fascinating. But we were talking about, you know, you grow up really conservative and Republican. When I was told I can't be a pilot anymore, you know, like in a way I didn't think of it. But yeah, thank you, Gloria Steinem. Thank you, women who fought for rights of women to be fulfilled and do what they want. Now I'm the most liberal Democrat there is. <laughs> if I had stayed within that confine of allowing that filter, you know, like this that is how meant, it is yeah. and this is how I have to think, how much more diminished I wouldn't be my full, live you, a full life. Full right. Self. You wouldn't have had this breadth of experiences right. that you've had and the life you've had. And the same with me. You know, that was very unexpected, the military kid part. I mean, we have a voice... It's almost like we don't get to be close to each other once we don't live on base anymore. Right. We're but not in the military. Yeah. Yeah. You know. But we have, a, I think, a real unique viewpoint of we the world. really do. Right? But there's a, a quality that military kids, and I don't care, Navy, Air Force, Army, and, and whatever generation, it's like we all, like, I'm very curious about the kids right now and their moms and dads, multiple deployments. You know, my dad was deployed twice. These kids, their parents are out four times, six times. I think it's resiliency. You, know, it's you learn resiliency, oh, yeah, right? That's it. I feel like I have been thrown in so many crazy situations in my life, and I just kind of roll with it. Yeah. There is something to be said for resiliency, especially in times like now. Yeah. No, it's true. Maybe that's what it is. It's the resilience. Yeah. And be constantly adjusting. And shifting. Moving. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we're living in the south. Now we live in the north. Um, and well, also, like, I don't think I could work for an airline because I don't think I could do the kind of schedules you guys do, but that's normal for you. Yeah. Like every day is different. Every week is different. But then again, people think I live a crazy life and who knows what country I'll be in. Right. Three months from now. So who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Nomadic life. All right. Well, thanks. <laughs> you bet.